Greens. We all have questions. Questions about culture, relationships, science, people, death, life, religion, politics, ethics, and God. And where do we go with these questions? Our smartphones. But what about the questions our devices just don't know the answers to? Am I a good person? Bringing up your search history. Wait, 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 no, no, no. What does Eucharist mean? Euchre is a common card game from... No, 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 no. What does Eucharist mean? Bob Euchre is an actor and former Major League Baseball player. Where do babies come from? You should ask your mom that. Don't seek answers from your device. Bring your questions here. And yes, you can ask that. Well, hey family, how we doing? It is so good to be with you this weekend. And whether you are here in Rock Island or our family in Bettendorf, uh, Kiwani, maybe you're dropping in online, I am so grateful that you're here. And like many of you, I genuinely look forward to these gatherings on the weekend. And it's through the worship and through engaging the Word of God and connecting with other people that God literally breathes life into me. And I trust that as you've come in today or you're popping online, that even now that you've already encountered some of those things. Now, this week was a pretty big week in the Barnes household for a couple of reasons, but one of those is that it was my son Maddox's sixth birthday. All right, so last month he started kindergarten, that's kind of a big deal, and then he became six years old this week, and you know, as we have this whole can I ask that kind of series of conversations, I just have a question for God, parents, you'll resonate with this, why do our kids grow so fast? Anybody ask that? They grow so fast, it just seems like yesterday I was holding him, just a little baby and him looking up on me, not arguing with me or fighting back, right, like just loving his dad. Um, that's a question that I would ask God. You know, and in reality is we, this is week three of a series of conversations that we're calling, can I ask that? But really it's questions that they came from you and they came from me, just questions that we would ask God. In fact, over the summer, we asked you to write questions on sheets of paper and we had nearly 200 questions that came in. Now, obviously, as we've talked about before, in four weeks, we can't cover 190 some questions, all right? It's just not possible. Now, thankfully, in our discover environments, our explore relationship environment that's happening right now, uh, we're tackling some of those, uh, but as I looked over those 190 some odd questions, there were a few that just really jumped out at me, and these were kind of like my favorites, so to speak. Now, now let me tell you, these remember, let me remind you, these are questions that we'd ask God, and I wanted to share just a couple of my favorites with you today, and the first one was, why do our pastors seem taller on screen? I don't know what to do with that, all right? In fact, it was four and a half years ago, the first time I had preached here, and then I went over to the Bettendorf campus, I had a, a gentleman come up to me, and he said, you look a lot taller on screen. And he, if that wasn't enough, he says, it's almost like God put his finger on your head and just went. <laughs> I don't know. Let me tell you. I don't know why I look taller or skinnier on screen, but let me tell you, me likey, okay? I like it. All right, second question that just really caught my eye was this one is, why can I grow hair on my back but not on my head? <laughs> what do you do with that? Okay, so I wrote that question if you're wondering, but um, 
hey, I have questions for God too, all right? Like that's just what it's like. <laughs> but on a more serious note, we all have questions for God, don't we? We walk through this life and things happen to us or we see things happen or we hear about things happening on the other side of the world and we find ourselves in a space where we're just saying, God, I don't understand that and I have questions. And sometimes it can lead us to a place of actually doubting God's existence itself or even beginning to wonder about the character of God. But one of the things I love about the God that we gather to worship together today is that he's a God that can stand up to the questions. He's a God that says, you know what, you have questions, that's okay, ask them. But his heart for us as followers of Jesus isn't to get stuck there. He's saying simply ask the questions, but then seek the answers through my word. Seek the answers through the community of believers. Seek my spirit and let me answer those questions. And really, that's the heartbeat and the posture of these whole can I ask that conversations. It's just our effort to wrestle with real questions and to seek God's face in the midst of those. And I'll tell you, the last couple of weeks, like, we've jumped in the deep end. Right? I mean, we've, we've answered questions about what is heaven and what is hell and, and how do you get there and, and how many dogs are in heaven. And we all know there's no cats in heaven, okay? So um, I'm, I'm just kidding, sort of, not really. But anyways, like we've asked questions like, what is salvation? How am I saved? Can I lose my salvation? I mean, last week, Pastor Beth tackled the, some of the questions around why is there suffering in the world? Why is there brokenness? Why is evil so prevalent all around us? And, and these were really great questions. I encourage you, if you miss those, get online and check those out. They are powerful. But listen, today we're going to jump into a topic and explore a topic that directly or indirectly impacts every single one of us. And I'll tell you, it's a topic that comes with almost suffocating stigma. And the topic that we're going to look at together today is simply the one of mental illness. Mental illness. You see, some of the questions that came in were questions like, why am I depressed? Why can't I experience joy? Questions like, why won't God heal me and deliver me of my bipolar disorder? There are questions like, if I commit suicide, if I kill myself, will I go to hell? Other questions that ask with Christians that commit suicide, will they go to hell? There were questions from loved ones, some of you who are walking alongside those who are journeying the battle of mental illness, and they're asking the questions of, how do I love and support my loved one who's walking through a mental illness that just treats me terribly? Or another question was, how do I support and encourage a friend who wants to take their own life? You see, these are deep questions. These are real questions. These are questions that behind them is real, tangible pain. And I want you to know I'm so grateful that you asked these questions. I want you to know those of you who wrote those questions on these sheets of paper, it took great courage. And I'm glad you did. I also recognize that each one of us in this space, at some point in our life, whether you wrote that on that sheet or not, you and I have wrestled with these questions, because it directly impacts, or directly or indirectly, all of us. Here's some statistics that I found at the National Association of Mental Illness, NAMI.org. The one says, one in five adults in the United States experience mental illness. One in five. 
one out of 25 adults live with severe mental illness. In other words, the diagnoses may look different. They may be things like depression or anxiety disorder or bipolar or schizophrenia. I mean, there's a laundry list of diagnoses, but one out of 25 literally suffer from severe mental illness. In other words, it impacts their ability to live and function in a normal way. One in 25. So we look at our children, it says one in five children ages 13 through 18 have or will have serious mental illness. It says this about children, suicide is the third leading cause of death in youth ages 10 through 24. It's the 10th leading cause in our population overall. One final statistic, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Now hear me. Behind these statistics are names, they're faces, and these statistics burden me, and they should. And we have real questions about why. And it's my hope this weekend that as we engage these questions and we look into the word of God, that God will do two things. Number one, that we would all embrace the reality that there is hope. And number two, this stigma, this suffocating stigma My prayer is that it will lift and that it can go away and that we can be freed up to pursue whatever we need, whatever help that we need. And so as we seek to ask, answer the why question, why is this so prevalent? Why is this in uh, in our culture? Why do we have these questions? We have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. If you remember Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. and And he steps back and he says, hey, this is good right? Then, he, then scripture says that God said, let us, let us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. And it says in, in the image of God, he created them. And then God stepped back and he said, now this is very good. Now here's what happened. God created man and woman in his image, and they were spiritual beings, but they were also deeply physical beings. You see, you and I today, we are more than the skin on our bodies, the, the bones that we carry, our muscles and our tendons. Yes, we are physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. And in the moment that God created us, his desire is there'd be no sickness, there'd be no death, there'd be no suffering. But something changed just a chapter later. And then in an instant, sin entered the world. And we were spiritually separated from God. The moment that Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit, the one thing that God asked them not to do, and he, they bit of that apple, in an instant sin entered, and with it came sickness and pain and death and sorrow. And spiritually, we were separated from God. And that's why we get up every weekend and we proclaim both through our worship, but in the word that, yes, we sinned. We were separated from God, but God so loved us that he sent his son, Jesus, his perfect son, to come to live the life that we couldn't live, to pay the price for us. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He hung on that cross, died the death that you and I should have died. And that by faith in him and trust in Jesus, that we can be saved, that we can be restored to relationship with God, both now but for eternity. That's the good news, right? And that's the reality of our spiritual state. But here's the deal. Just like our spiritual being was marred by sin, so was our physical being. And it was in that instant that sin entered the world that along with it came things like sickness and death. It was in that moment that things like cancer entered our vocabulary or pain became part of the story. And much like cancer can affect certain parts of our body as a sickness, Mental illness is deeply physical. It's a sickness of our brain. Our brain's part of our physical body, if you were wondering, all right? And it impacts our brain. 
But mental illness is deeply physical, but it's also deeply spiritual. And here's why. The same enemy that sat there and tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit is the same one that barks in our ear that you're not good enough, that nobody loves you, that you need to isolate yourself. If they know that you're suffering with depression, they're going to reject you. And he's the same one that's just incessant. He never stops. It's deeply physical, but deeply spiritual. As followers of Jesus, those of us who are followers of Jesus that that live with some form of mental illness, it's even worse because the enemy is sitting there saying, well, listen, if you, you must not pray enough, that's why you're depressed. Or God is punishing you because of the bad things that you've done. That's why you suffer from bipolar. Or how about this lie that you hear the enemy saying, you're a follower of Jesus, you should be strong enough. But here's the reality is that, that that lie that we should be strong enough woefully overestimates our ability and it underestimates God. And the enemy is just incessant over and over and over. You know, one of the common misconceptions about the Bible is that we don't see a mental illness anywhere displayed in, Bible, in the Bible, and that's simply not true. You can see that in the life of King Saul. And in fact, really, from cover to cover, you see examples of great men and women of faith who suffer from a mental illness like depression. And there are numerous examples. I just want to share a few of them with you. Anybody heard of Elijah before? Elijah, the great prophet, the major prophet, arguably one of the most influential prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, it's Elijah then in 1 Kings chapter 18 is a part of this like incredible showdown between, you know, the prophets of Baal and, and, and Elijah. And literally, Elijah prays, God rains down fire, consumes all the altars, all, I mean, kills all of the prophets of Baal. I mean, it's like one of these moments where if I'm a follower of Jesus and God shows up like that, I'm going, woohoo! Like, this is awesome! But just sentences later, verses later, look at what happens to Elijah. After he's threatened by Queen Jezebel, it says this, 1 Kings 19, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. He came to a broom bush, he sat down under and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better off than my ancestors. In the depths of deep depression, Elijah longs for God to take his life. He didn't want to live anymore. Anybody heard of David? David, this is the man that the scripture says is a man after God's own heart. This is the one who triumphed over Goliath, like a huge, awesome victory. God showed up. This is the one who was anointed the king of Israel, the king of God's people. He's kind of a big deal. But if you look at the book of Psalms, over and over, we just see this wrestling with deep despair and depression that David walks through. Here's an example in Psalm chapter 88. He says, for my soul is filled with troubles and my life comes near to the grave. I am added among those who go down into the deep hole. I am like a man without strength. I am left among the dead. Like those who have been killed and lie in the grave, who you remember no more. Like, God, you have forgotten me. You have rejected me. You have walked away from me. He goes on to say, they are cut off from your help. And he says, you have put me in the deepest hole, in the dark and deep place. David, in the midst of challenge, finds himself in deep depression. We go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Anybody heard of the guy by the name of the Apostle Paul? Right? The Apostle Paul, the great missionary church planner. This is the one that Jesus himself called to take the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the very ends of the earth. He's the one in many ways where you and I, the fact that we can hear about Jesus today, is tied back to his faithfulness to go and to be what God created him to be. 
He's one that wrote most of the New Testament. But listen to what even the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. What he's saying is there's things happening around us that we just can't endure any longer. I can't do it anymore. We can't do it anymore. And so much so that he says, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul is saying, in the midst of this pressure in the world, my walls are just closing in on me. Lord, I just want you to take me home. I want to die. It's in this deep depression that we see. And the reality is that most of us, at some point in the course of our life, encounter this kind of depression. We enter seasons of our life where we feel hopeless where we feel like we have to isolate ourselves, where we feel like we literally can't see through the fog. And we start to hear the lies that it's always going to be this way. It's never going to change. God has rejected you. You know, I mentioned this week was a big week in the Barnes family. And it was. Maddox's birthday was awesome. But also on Tuesday was the 10-year anniversary of my mother's tragic and, and untimely death. See, here's a picture of my mom. You see where I get my good looks from, don't you? <laughs> you know, I can still look out right now and remember the first time I ever preached and about two-thirds of the way back on my left, your right, looking at my mom hovering over the seat with just a look of pride in her face. Here's another picture of us at my wedding. It's my mom and my brother Jonathan and I. I just used this so you'd see I had hair like I really did. Um, you know, it was just about a couple years after this picture that I sat across from her for the last time at a Chinese restaurant, and, which is a great place to meet, by the way. And we're talking, and, and our conversation led to a point where she recommitted her life to Christ, not knowing that within a matter of a few days she would be standing before him. Just two months later, after my mom took her last breath and stepped into eternity, my grandfather had a stroke, and he died. Three months after that, my, this man right here, my father, experienced a tragic, sudden death by way of heart attack just a few months later. A matter of three weeks later, my grandmother, the one whose husband had just died of a stroke, passed away. In a matter of six months, I lost four pillars of my life. And I'll tell you, it was in that space that I encountered some of the deep, dark despair and hopelessness that I think Elijah encountered and David encountered in which Paul encountered. And can I tell you something? There were moments I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't sleep at night. There were moments that I couldn't even talk. But yet at the same time, I was a pastor, right? I'm the one that's supposed to be caring for people, telling them about the hope that's in Jesus. While all behind that, that facade and the happy, clappy church face was inside just this belief that this was my lot, that this was how it was going to be, that it would never change. And if I'm honest, I really resonated with what Paul spared, that I despaired of life itself. I honestly didn't know if I wanted to do this life anymore. But I was scared to get help. You see, to ask for help was a, a sign of weakness, and I didn't want to be perceived as weak or, or faithless. I mean, that's what our culture tells us, isn't it? That you only ask for help if you're weak. Or how about this other idea in our culture that, hey, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? That's what our culture tells us. 
And so you know what? I didn't seek help. I played the happy, clappy, happy church guy, and and I prayed that, you know, God is good, God is great, thank you for these food, amen, prayers, all the way, a while underneath, just dying within. But it was in this period of my life that I learned a really important truth, and it's one that I see really displayed throughout Scripture. And it's this truth that asking for help reveals strength, not weakness. Asking for help reveals strength, not weakness. One of the statistics that just really gripped my heart in NAMI was that 60% of those with mental illness didn't receive treatment last year. And I think that's for a couple reasons. One is I think we have a lack of resources, and we, we legitimately do in our cities. But number two, it's this idea that to ask for help means that we're weak. But asking for help reveals strength, not weakness. You see, it was David in the depths of dark depression, in the the mire, in the clay. It was David that said, "I, I look up to the hills. I place my eyes on the mountains. Where does my help come from? He's not saying that his help comes from the mountains. He says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. It's David asking for help, not because he's weak, but because he is strong. He says, God, I need your help. Or the Apostle Paul in the depths of his depression, in one moment in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes, Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. This is one of six or seven times in his letters that he writes these words. And it's not because he's weak. It's because the Apostle Paul is literally saying, this is so hard. Things are crashing in on me. People are trying to take my life. And he's saying, listen, I need your help. Please pray for us. Pray for me. Asking for help reveals strength, not weakness. You know, eventually I did pursue help. I went to my doctor, and my doctor connected me with a counselor, which, by the way, I believe every one of us at some point in our life is going to need a good counselor, period. A counselor in those interactions diagnosed me with depression, and, and he put me on a medication. And, and the craziest thing happened. As I met with him consistently, and I took this medication, and I prayed I began to to get better. I began to believe that that I didn't have to live the rest of my life this way. There's almost like this hope began to bubble up in me. Now, was this how I had hoped God would heal me? No, not at all. In fact, I was like so hoping that I'd snap my fingers, I'd pray a prayer, and the fog would just dissipate, and I would be back, right? But that's not what God did. And I had to battle with the stigma of, man, you're going to a counselor and you're on medication. And I battled that for quite a while until a friend of mine, he and I were interacting and he said, hey, Justin, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, people that are on blood pressure medication, they don't carry around with them great shame and guilt because they're on a blood pressure medication. He says, it's that medication that helps position their body and their heart to be healthy and whole until maybe a a deeper level healing happens in some way. And he said, so why are you carrying the shame and guilt because you're seeing a counselor and you're on a medication? And you know what? He was right. He was absolutely right. And that awkward interaction, and it was awkward for me, really helped me embrace this second truth that I want us to get today as we talk about depression, as we talk about mental illness. And it's simply that the pathway to healing, by the way, healing is possible, amen? The pathway to healing, though, here's the deal, requires authentic community. The pathway to healing requires authentic community. Do me a favor, on your note guide, I want you to circle authentic five times. And here's why I have you do that. 
Because just because you and I walk into a space like this this weekend, or, or maybe we have a group of friends that we connect with, or maybe we're in a journey group of some kind, even just because you're in those environments and you're there every week doesn't mean that it's authentic community. You see, what differentiates authentic community from really fake community is your ability in that space with that person or that group of people to take the mask off and to be real. It's that one person. It could be one person, two, three, five, ten, but the person you can take your mask off and say, you know what? When they ask you how you're doing, you say, I feel like my life's falling apart. Or you can say, you know what? I feel like I just want to give up. Or that person asks you how you're doing, and you can say, you know what? I want to be honest with you. I need you to pray for me because I don't know that I want to live anymore. That's authentic community. And the pathway to healing often requires authentic community. And you know what? The enemy knows that too. That's why he's in, just in our ear barking like, don't let people know. If they hear that you're depressed or they hear that you might want to take your life or they hear that you're wrestling with that, they're going to reject you. So you better get back in a corner and hide yourself. And he just, he beats us up and we get us in this place of isolation and then he just pours it on. But the reality is that's not God's heart for you and me. He says, I want you to encounter community. In fact, that's why when you look at the whole of the scripture, even the New Testament, you see in multiple passages where he's talking about doing life together. One of those is found in uh, Galatians chapter 6, where it says, help each other in troubles and problems. Another translation says, bear one another's burdens. But let me ask you today, if we're not in spaces with people where we can take our mask off and truly let them know what's going on and ask for help, how can they ever help us bear our burdens? How can they ever help us in our troubles and our problems? How can you ever help somebody else if you're not in an environment where they can share openly with you? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says it this way. You have verse 9 through 12 in your outline. I'm just going to read verse 12, and it says this. A person standing alone, a person who is isolated, a person who is withdrawing from community is one that can be attacked and defeated. But it goes on to say, but two can stand back to back and help me with this. What's it say? Two can stand back to back and what? Can conquer. And it goes on to say three are even better. Yes, that's a reference to the Lord and, and you and community and the Lord. But it's also a tangible, practical thing that if you have one person that you can stand back to back with, you can conquer. Three are better than two and four are better than three and five are better than four. The reality is it's talking about the importance of authentic community, people that you can lock arms with when life is not going how you hoped. Because the pathway to healing often requires authentic community. Yeah, I'll never forget the community that I encountered in that season of my life. And there were men from church that I didn't even know that asked me, hey, Justin, will you go out to lunch? And that's a great way to meet with a pastor, by the way. And then, like, we'd go and we'd, we'd meet and we'd be across the table from each other. And, and, they, and one gentleman specifically said, hey, I just want you to know the reason I wanted to meet with you was because I've lost a mom and I know what it's like. And he's like, I'm just here to talk if you need to. Essentially, what he was saying is I'm willing to get in the muck and the mire and the clay and sit with you. And I'll tell you what, we did talk. My wife was an absolute rock. My friends would call me out of the blue and they'd just say, hey, Justin, how are you doing? And I would be honest with them. And it was through that community, amongst other things, and counseling and the help that I received, that God brought about healing in my life. 
You know what the tragic thing is? Is although it's true that asking for help reveals strength and that authentic community is the pathway to healing, although those things are true, there are many who just don't step into those for one reason or another. And the Satan is just there living out his job description. John 10, I come to seek, kill, and destroy. And we, many people, saddens me to say this, many, not all, by the way, many people find themselves in a place where they take their own life and they commit suicide. You know, a few weeks ago when I knew this was the topic that we would be talking about today, I saw on the news a 12-year-old boy back in the middle school that I went to had taken his life. Then I thought back over the last couple months where we've seen celebrities in Hollywood who on the surface have it all. They have the money. They have the fame. They're household names. They have prestige. They have Emmys or whatever those are. And like they have all the things on the surface that you think they'd would define success, but they took their life, many of them in a row. There was even leaders in the Christian community. These were men that I watched preach and was just in awe of how gifted they were and how God was using them that had taken their life. And it just wrecked me. And I began to ask the question, why? You, many of you have asked that as well. And so I reached out to a number of counselors in the area that we often refer to as a church, and, and they said some things to me that just deeply impacted me. One of them said, she said, as I, every client, literally every client that I've met with post-attempt, post-suicide attempt that weren't successful, praise God. She said, they said this verbatim to me, whether they said it or agreed to the statement. And the statement was, I don't want to die. I just wanted the pain to end. They didn't want to die. They just wanted the pain to end, the emotional pain, the physical pain that they are encountering. Another counselor described it, used the analogy of like waves hitting the seashore. And what she said is, as the waves come in and there's that pressure in the, 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 the thoughts of being a failure and the pain is so overwhelming that, that the, the people that have maybe attempted or, or been successful in suicide literally feel like there was no other option to escape the pain other than to take their life. She said, even though they knew the heartache that it would cause the loved ones around them, as that wave came in, they just couldn't bear it anymore. But she said, if they would just hold on, the wave would go back out, just like a wave goes back out to sea. I've seen this lived out in the last six months. I've had a couple people in my office that are just shaking, saying, I just want to kill myself. I want to kill myself. But as I've sat with them, I've watched that wave come in. And I've watched that wave go out, and they're able to see a little clearer and to get the help that they need. Now, I want you to know today, if you find yourself in a place where the wave is just beating against you, and you feel like there's nowhere you can go, and you're all alone, and there's no one that you can call, I want to show you how to do something today. And in that moment, you can simply grab your smartphone that looks a lot like this. And by simply holding the button or saying, hey, Siri, you say something along the lines of, I want to die or I want to kill myself. This is what you're going to hear. It sounds like talking with someone might help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline has confidential, one-on-one -on -one support, 24 hours a day. Would you like me to call them for you? By simply hitting a button, even if you feel all alone, that will connect you with somebody who will talk to you. And you can endure that wave coming in and, and, and stay and hold on and keep fighting until it comes out and get the help that you need. Now listen, even though those resources are available, I recognize that many 
tragically have taken their own life. And what's sadder to me, if that is even possible to be, is the fact that many of these have have been families who are left, have been met with this narrative or this thought that, that suicide determines their loved one's eternity. And I want you to know that that simply is not true. You see, as we look at the Bible and as a church, we believe that our eternity is based on Jesus. Suicide doesn't determine our eternity, Jesus does. Another way to say that is just this here. Our eternity is determined by our final faith, our final faith, what we believe about Jesus in the moment when death comes, our final faith, our eternity is determined by our final faith, not our final act. Our eternity is determined by our final faith, not our final act. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2 says about our eternity and salvation. It says, God saved you by his grace when you, what? Help me out. When you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Now hang with me for a minute. Because some of us have embraced this idea that if even a Christian commits suicide, that they automatically go to hell. And here's what we're embracing. We're embracing the idea that there is literally an act so heinous that it disqualifies us from salvation, even if we're a follower of Jesus. But what we don't understand is that to embrace that idea, we're actually embracing two things, not one. Because if you embrace this idea that there is something so heinous that you can do that it can disqualify you from salvation, you must also embrace that that you and I can do enough good works to earn our way into heaven. Now, we recognize the Bible is very clear about that. Ephesians chapter 2 just said that. But here's the deal. If you embrace one, you have to embrace the other. You can't have one without the other. You see, I've been around circles of people who have, who have made statements and, and things like, even if you're a Christian, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. And they're basing that off of a shockingly narrow interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see what this passage of scripture says. You can look it up at some point where it says, whoever destroys the temple of God, God will destroy them. And so as followers of Jesus, we believe if we step into relationship with God, that the Holy Spirit comes into our life, that we are literally temples of the Holy Spirit. And so what they use this scripture out of context to explain is that because you destroyed through self-murder the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God will destroy you. Now here's the problem. If you look at the chapters that follow there, it is very clear, abundantly clear that the Apostle Paul is not writing about suicide. In fact, what he is writing about is he is writing to those who are in unrepentant and immoral believers. A little bit later, he actually talks about what I just said, that, the te- that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is writing to those who are immoral. He is not writing to those who are committing suicide. It's just simply not true. Our eternity is determined by our final faith, not our final act. Now hear me today. Don't take this as license when you hit those hard moments to go, hey, it's okay that I take my life. I want to be clear. Scripture is so clear in 1 John about murder being a sin and self-murder is a sin. Hear me. There is ripple and we'll have to stand before Jesus and give account. But what we believe and the scripture speaks about that is that when Jesus hung on that cross and he shed his blood for us, that that covers our sins, both our previous sins, our current sins, but also the sins that we will ever commit. We believe that God's grace and his mercy is so significant that there is nothing that can separate us. There is no act, there is no decision that can separate us from the love of God. We get that from Romans 8. Look, listen to these words. 
says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor what? Anything, anything, includes suicide, else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our eternity is determined by our final faith. What do we believe about Jesus? The moment we take our last breath, not our final act. So you may be asking, so what? Like Justin, we jumped in the deep end and I didn't have my floaties with me today. Like, what do I do today? All right. And let me tell you, I know some of us in this space today, mental illness is a part of our everyday rhythm, whether it's diagnosed or not, whether it's severe or whether it's minor. And hear my heart today, I am so sorry. Many of you have sought counsel from believers or you've walked into churches and, and you've talked to pastors and, and you have been condemned and talked down to. The, some of the lies that you've heard, you've been told that mental illness isn't real. And hear me, the church, Big C, Church Universal has done a terrible job at this. And listen, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, as a leader in the church, I want to ask for your forgiveness. But I want you to know today, asking for help reveals strength. Ask for help. Talk to a friend. Talk to a family member. Go to the doctor. Tell them what you're encountering. Go to a counselor or come talk to a pastor. You are not alone in this. Take a risk. Take the mask off. Let somebody see you. Be real and experience the healing that God can bring through authentic community. Now, I recognize some of us in this space as well. We are walking alongside loved ones who have encountered mental illness, and, and you have been taking the punches, whether literally or metaphorically. And I know today that you do that because you love your loved one. And I want you to hear me today. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that they're walking through that. Stop playing the blame game. Stop beating yourself up. It is not your fault. Secondly, you can't control it, and you can't fix it. But what I can tell you with great certainty today is that you can't do it alone. Do this life with somebody. Lock arms with others who are navigating this journey. Those people that are coming to you and saying, hey, I want to help. How can I help? Can I bring you a meal? Take them up on the offer. There's some resources I'd encourage all of us to look at it. Uh, NAMI.org, it's the National Association of Mental Illness. I referenced some statistics from there earlier. But what's really great about this website is that in, in our cities and communities all over the country, they have what they call peer-to-peer groups and family-to-family groups. These are environments where you can come and link arms with others who are navigating this, but whether it's personally infected or by walking with loved ones. One, one of the things I love is that we're currently in conversations with NAMI to provide some of these environments at our campuses because we really believe the healing is possible through authentic community. Now, I want to leave you with a few really important truths for each one of us in this place today. And these are truths that whether you are navigating the journey of mental illness or you are walking alongside a loved one or maybe even today, you just, all of us need to remember. The first is that you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not the only one wrestling with this. Not only are you not alone because the Lord is with you, you have a church family. Look around you that wants to link arms with you. Secondly, you are not a mistake. Listen, our God doesn't make mistakes. Did you hear me? He doesn't make mistakes. You're not messed up. You're not broken. Our God doesn't make mistakes. And you are priceless. 
I know the enemy's sitting here saying, you're worthless, you have no value, it'd be better off if you weren't here, but hear me, not only do you have value, you are priceless. God's word says you are his masterpiece. You are not alone. You are not a mistake. You are priceless. And finally, last thing I want us to hear today is that there is hope. There is hope. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, there is hope. Turn to your other neighbor and say, there is hope. Here's the reality. I can say that with great confidence because this is what Jesus himself said that he came to provide. If you've been wondering, is there hope? Or maybe you're in a place today where you're wondering, why did Jesus come? Let me read to you the scripture that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament in Luke chapter 4, in which he says, this is my mission statement. This is why I came. And see if you can hear this from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. He says, the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me, Jesus is saying this, to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to do what? Comfort the what? Brokenhearted. And to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. He goes on to say, he, God, has sent me, Jesus, to tell those who what? Those who mourn. Those who are encountering despair that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Things are going to change. And he says, and with it, the day of God's anger against his enemies. Verse 3, it says, to all who mourn in Israel, and not just in Israel, all of us who mourn, who are created in the image of God, who God longs for a relationship with us, all of us who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of what? Beauty instead of ashes. A joyous what? Blessing instead of mourning. And festive what? Praise instead of despair. That's why Jesus came. There is hope. You remember in week one, Pastor Sean used this analogy of this this rope and this red portion symbolizing our life here on earth. It could be 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And the rest of this rope is eternity. Now listen. Jesus stepped out of heaven, fully God, fully man, came, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we, couldn't, that we deserve to die, so that we could have hope here, so that we can encounter healing here. But here's the reality. What Jesus says about eternity is that hope isn't just possible here. He says, listen, when that day comes, I will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. It'll all be gone. In that day, there'll be no more suicide. There'll be no more bipolar. There'll be no more depression. There'll be no more mental illness. In that day, they will all be gone. That's the hope that we have both in today, but also for eternity. Listen to me today. There is hope. There is hope. And the hope is in Jesus It's in Jesus. Hear me today. Ask for help. It's a sign of strength. Healing is possible. It comes through authentic community. Hear me, that our our eternity is determined by our final faith, not our final act. Listen real close today. You are not alone. You are not a mistake. You are priceless. You are God's masterpiece. He loves you. He cares about you. There is hope. Listen, follower of Jesus today, there is hope. As we close, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And in a moment, I'm going to pray over us, and our worship teams are going to come, and they're going to lead us. And my ask of you, whether you're here in Rock Island, if you're in Bettendorf, Kiwani, if you're on the road, maybe you need to pull over. But what I'm going to ask you to do right now is that as we sing this song, I want you, if, you're a, if you believe today there is hope, 
I want you to sing at the top of your lungs. I want you to take a bold move and lift your hands in the air and sing it not just for yourself. Sing it for the person next to you. Sing it for the person across the aisle from you. And may this be a moment that the words of this song and the truth that there is hope would be written on the tablets of our heart so then those moments come when the waves hit that we don't forget that there is hope in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that is the reality. That is the truth, that there is hope. And although we may endure suffering now, that we may endure some form of mental illness now, God, that there is hope that healing is possible both today, but certainly for eternity. And so, God, I pray for those of us in the room today, God, who are battling with one mental illness or another, God, that they're battling with the stigma that's attached to it. God, I pray that you would bring healing. For us who are journeying alongside a loved one, God, give us the energy, the courage to continue to love and support them, even when maybe they're not making that easy. But Lord, my prayer for this church, God, is I pray in this space that the stigma would be gone. God, that this would be a place where we can take our mask off, where we can encounter an authentic community because we know that you're a God who can heal and you're a God who loves all people and that God created them in his image. So God, we give you love. We give you praise. And we lift our hands and our voices now and worship to you. Write this truth on our heart that there is hope in Jesus. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. amen.